0: all right everyone quieted down like okay getting ready to start so let's get into this tonight i am i'm really excited about tonight um last week we had spent some time talking about the kingdom of heaven uh, with the question of can you explain the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of god and what's the difference between those two and so we only had time to really work through just a part of the kingdom of heaven and i will say that based on even the events that unfolded over the weekend and from pastor tom's message on sunday about israel um i'm like wow we're going through these kingdoms and i'm like that's not a coincidence so i decided to go back into this a little bit and dig a little bit deeper and provide some more details that frankly i feel like in some ways this might even be a trial run for some of the things we're going to hit in jbi in the third trimester of this year So we're going to go a little bit deeper tonight. So hopefully you brought your biblical spiritual waiters. I don't know if that's a thing. Um, And I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible because um, that's one of the things I try to work very hard to do. But I think this is very, very important. Um, Understanding the difference between these two kingdoms in the Scripture, like we mentioned last week, leads to so many things that are false uh, beliefs, false doctrine. And if you don't get these kingdoms right in the scripture, you're going to end up um, doctrinally unsound. You will. It's only a matter of time. Uh, and, and it's no coincidence either that when it comes to modern Bible translations, that they completely remove uh, the differences between the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And when you go into the scripture and you actually see passages that seem to be the same, they are quite different in how God is talking about a literal physical kingdom with the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about a spiritual kingdom with the kingdom of God. And he did not want that to be messed with. And in modern Bibles, they completely take that out. Uh, Expositors and theologians will say that it's one and the same. And it's no wonder that they believe in some crazy, crazy unbiblical doctrine. And so I want to take some time and kind of review just a little bit on some of the verses that we hit last week. Uh, I want to spend some more time, as you can see on your study sheet, working on some different details. But this is extremely important. So we're going to spend all of our time on this tonight. And then next week, we're going to take a look at the importance of Daniel's, uh, the statue in Daniel, and how that goes hand in hand with these kingdoms, and really what the devil's doing, and what God is doing uh, in this world today, and how Israel even plays such a critical portion to that. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get things started. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom. I need your wisdom, and I'm thankful for the things that even today that you put on my heart and mind as I've been trying to figure out different tweaks and changes to this and, and so I just ask God that you would um, just really guide my thoughts and help me to say the right things in the right manner. I, I do not want to misrepresent you. Uh, this is such an important doctrine and I pray that it would help all of us to be able to rightly divide the scriptures and to really understand the whole of the Bible in a much better fashion. And so just help me tonight to be able to articulate these things to the best of my ability. And where I fall short, that your spirit would pick up the slack and just fill in some of those things that I'm, that I'm missing myself. And so, Father, we, we do love you, and we are so thankful for your, your patient, loving kindness towards us. Um, your mercy is so great, and I pray, God, that we would stand in awe of you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. All right, so the question, can you explain the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? and how i'm going to start this off and i'm going to end with this as well is that i put a chart together that i go over in great detail in our bible institute to really kind of help people to understand the kingdom of god and the kingdom of heaven through the bible and how this actually works out and so i'm going to just briefly explain this because this was something that through some study and just you know for me it was very helpful to put a visual um, to all these truths, and I think that will help most people. I've had some people say, hey, I love it when you provide visuals. And so this is one that is really, really good. And so I want to just walk through this at a very brief level. We're going to dive into the scriptures about some of the details of this, and then I'm going to bring it back around at the end. And this chart hopefully will make a whole lot of sense when we're done. So the blue line represents the kingdom of God, and that is the invisible spiritual kingdom. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. The green line is the kingdom of heaven, and that is the literal physical kingdom where Jesus Christ will sit on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling as the king of Israel. And then the red dotted line is the counterfeit kingdom of the devil that he started and that he wanted to have from uh, basically the moment that he fell into sin. He wanted to be like the most high, as it says in Isaiah 14. And Ezekiel 28 talks about that iniquity that was found in him in that kingdom that he ruled. And so based on the things we've talked about in weeks past, talking about the gap, talking about the fall of Lucifer, we're gonna start over on the far left side with Lucifer. And as you can see, before Lucifer fell, he was that anointed cherub that covered the throne of God and he was given dominion over God's earth at that point in time. Isaiah 14 clearly articulates how he had a throne. And at that time, when you study it and comparing scripture with scripture, that the earth and God's throne were in close proximity one with another, but because of the details of Ezekiel 28, where Lucifer was lifted up with pride in Isaiah 14, that he wanted to be like the Most High, he was not content with what God created him for and the role that God gave him, and he wanted to be in that place of God. And that Most High position is where he would rule and reign over all the affairs of the world. So you have the Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of God were in alignment at that point in time under Lucifer's dominion as the anointed cherub. And so that's important to understand because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven were always meant to be together. They were never supposed to be separated. But as you can imagine, the physical and the spiritual, when he decided, hey, I'm going to rebel, well, now everything is just in complete disarray. So when he fell and God ended up judging the earth at that point in time, and that leads us into Genesis 1-2, where the earth was without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep... And then you have the recreation, the six days of recreation, and then you have Adam, and unto Adam was given dominion. And so at that point in time, Adam was made in the image of God and according to his likeness, and he was called the son of God. And when that happened, he was given that dominion, and so there could exist at that point in time a physical, literal kingdom where God told them to be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And then you also have him being in the image of God where Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, would come down and he would walk with them and talk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And he did that. And we see him do that in Genesis chapter 3. But that represents the spiritual side where he was in complete fellowship with God. And when Adam ate of the tree, it says God told him that in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And so he died spiritually that day. Now, could God have completely wiped out Adam? Adam? And killed him physically? Absolutely. He deserved it. And God was merciful and gracious. And that's where He provided coats of skins and clothed them. And that was the first instance of a sacrifice covering their sin. They tried to cover their sin with fig leaves, but it didn't work. And so He instituted a blood sacrifice. And so now you have the spiritual kingdom is now gone because He has now lost that image. He no longer is a three part being with a body, soul, and spirit that is alive and in fellowship with God. His spirit is now dead, and we would find out later when Jesus says in John chapter 3 that he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So Adam now has the ability, because of God's grace and mercy, to continue to live physically, but he has the ability now to still build that kingdom of heaven. And so we spent some time last week talking about that kingdom of heaven being that literal, physical kingdom that God promised, that from the seed of David, that there would be a king to sit on that physical throne in Jerusalem. So as you work your way through and you start to see from Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and then the rest of the 17 kings of of Judah, because Rehoboam, the kingdom split, 10 tribes to the north, two to the south. And so the kings of Judah are the primary focus, and we're going to talk about why in a minute. But that kingdom of heaven could still exist at that point in time because it's all about building that physical, literal kingdom in Israel. But once Israel went into captivity by the Assyrians, the ten tribes to the north went to Assyria. The two southern were not conquered until Babylon came in. Now you have the times of the Gentiles, and that's the beginning of it with Babylon. And so Babylon exists, and you have Daniel, and he starts talking about that image, which we're going to talk about next week. You have John the Baptist. Both of those men were from the tribe of Judah, which is pretty interesting. So God is still working in the tribe of Judah. And then you have Jesus Christ and his coming from the tribe of Judah, who is now offering the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And we see that in all four of the Gospels where he says, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he starts talking about the restoration of those two kingdoms. Israel rejects Jesus Christ at his first coming. The nation of Israel, in order to have a literal physical kingdom, the nation of Israel had to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Had to. And because they rejected him, Matthew 12, moving into Matthew 13, now he can't set up that physical kingdom. It's not possible any longer. So because Israel rejected it, now Jesus Christ, when he ascended at the end of the Gospels in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, when he ascended, that kingdom of heaven ended up going with him because You cannot have the establishment of the kingdom of heaven without the king. You have to have the king. There has to be a people, and you have to have a king. And so that left with him, and it will not return again until he comes again. Revelation 19, 20, where he will set up his throne and his dominion, and he will rule over the entire planet, over all nations, as the king of Israel. But one thing that did happen by his death, burial, and resurrection is that he was able to restore the kingdom of God. That had to happen with him coming at that time, offering that kingdom. And so now those of us that trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are born again, and now we are a part of these sons of God. We're able to be part of that son of God, that classification that ends up being a part of this kingdom of God. And when the rapture takes place, that kingdom of God leaves. But then it will come back again with Jesus Christ at his second coming. And the manifestation of the counterfeit kingdom will take place during that tribulation period. More specifically, you have the counterfeit kingdom physically, obviously from the dotted line. That's the continuation of the times of the Gentiles. But in Revelation, after the rapture of the church, there's that small little window of about three red dots right there. There will be the full manifestation of the counterfeit kingdom of God and the counterfeit kingdom of heaven that the devil has always wanted to establish. Because the devil doesn't do anything new, he is an imitator, and anything that God does, he does the same thing, but on the opposite side. That's why when you take a look at Christ, you have Antichrist. And when the Antichrist comes, he will look a lot like Jesus. He will sound like him, he will do miracles, but it will be a false Jesus. And so, the, the whole of, of, of Christendom, if you want to call it mainstream Christianity, and even this entire world, is having a, a complete reprogramming about who Jesus actually is. And you can see it all over the place because when Christians, so called, get away from the Bible, you can now convince them of almost anything. And so, those of us, which we need the Word of God, those of us that are Bible believers, when we see things happening, we're like, hold on a second. That's not what the scriptures say. But most Christians today are not equipped to have that proper discernment because they don't know their Bible. And if you don't know your Bible, you do not know God. You may have the Spirit of God. It's possible to be born again for sure. But I'm telling you, if you do not get in God's Word and you do not get God's Word in you, that it is going to be extremely extremely difficult to have proper discernment as things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and so that's why we have to be very very careful we need to stay very close to the book so all in all this is something that takes a lot of time and a lot of chewing and a lot of meditating on and we're gonna come back to it in a minute at the very end of, of our class tonight at the end of the lesson but I wanted to kind of give you this giant overview this is why over here, when you have Genesis through 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel through Acts, you take a look at this whole thing. The Old Testament has always been focused more on the physical literal. That's why. That's exactly why. Because that's what God was trying to create and establish. Why is the New Testament not focused on the physical literal, but more on the spiritual kingdom? Well, because of that. When Jesus Christ came to restore, he wanted to restore both kingdoms, but one was rejected. And so now you have from Acts, basically to Revelation, where we're not about building a physical kingdom. And yet there are many Christians that that's what they want to do, but they are outside of the will of God because they don't understand the kingdoms. They don't get it. Like there's nothing wrong with humanitarian stuff. However, for most Christians, that's their focus good deeds, doing things to make others feel better and make themselves feel better. But so many mission trips happen all across the planet between churches where they're going and doing great humanitarian things, but they're not giving people the gospel. They're not telling people how to be born again. They're not telling people how to be spiritually restored. So any activity that we do as a church must incorporate spiritual restoration through the gospel. We have to, or else what are we doing this for? And that's why a lot of churches, maybe even ignorantly, are focused on the wrong things. So let's talk about the physical literal again. Just run through some verses up on the screen, and then I want to get into some more details about it. So that's the giant overview. We talked about this one last week, Acts 6.1. Before Jesus ascended into heaven... His disciples were together, the apostles, and they said when they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for a physical restoration. They did not understand what God was doing because Jesus' response to them was, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And then he left them and that's all they knew. And even as you go into the next sermons that are happening in the book of Acts, it's all about the physical, literal kingdom. And this is of no surprise because the Old Testament is totally littered with all sorts of scriptures about prophecy, about that restoration. And what would happen with the Messiah. 2nd Samuel 7:12, and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, i will set up thy seed, thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels and i will establish his kingdom. Psalm 132, verse 11, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit, literal, of thy body will I set upon thy throne. Psalm 72, 8 through 11, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring, shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. That's that physical, literal kingdom. Daniel chapter 2, 35 and 44. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of these kings, literal kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. That is a literal, physical kingdom. Now, when Jesus Christ sets this up, there's a couple of things that are going to unfold. And let's go to this sub point underneath the first one. So we've already talked about the literal physical kingdom that, that was set up by God where Christ will rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. But now the sub point underneath that one, the kingdom of heaven is directly tied with physical restoration. And it is established with Jesus Christ taking over the kingdoms of the earth as the king of Israel. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. It is directly tied with physical restoration and it is established with Jesus Christ taking over the kingdoms of the earth as the king of Israel. The greatest description of this is Revelation 19. And we'll begin in verse 11. So this is after the seven-year tribulation period. And you have the second coming that begins in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So here you have Jesus Christ. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, heaven opens and he comes back, and he is a one-man show. He comes back and he wrecks the earth all by himself. We follow him clothed in and clean and white linen. We're on horses, which I always love this verse because my wife is deathly allergic to horses. And so I tell her, I'm like, there's coming a day, babe, where you are going to get to ride that horse. <laughs> She's like, I can't wait. <laughs> so that day is going to happen. And we are going to follow him and we are going to follow him as he goes and he conquers everything. And with that sword, he is going to smite all the nations and the slaughter is gonna be so great, so great. And there's gonna be blood all over him in the process that it talks about that even the bridle, it talks about how the blood will be up to the bridle of of these horses. We're talking about a large space with a massive amount of blood. I mean, this this is bad, but he comes here and he takes over the earth by force. And you have the Antichrist, which ruled the earth with his own rod of iron, and he ends up creating this entire war, this army. They redirect all their forces back to Jesus Christ, and you notice there isn't even a battle. It's like verse 19, they're going to make war, verse 20, and the beast was taken, and with him and, and the false prophet. And they were both cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And so he comes back and he established it. But the first thing he has to do to establish his kingdom is that he has got to lay waste to that king of the earth at that time, the Antichrist. And so he does that. And after that occurs, then you have Matthew 25, which we talked about last week, the judgment of the nations. And after the judgment of the nations, then begins chapter 20 and verse one. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And so for a thousand years, Jesus Christ is going to set up his kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to set it up and he is going to rule and reign on planet Earth as the King of Israel over all the nations of the world, and there will be no devil to interfere. There will be no devil to interfere until after the thousand years is over. And so that is the physical restoration, and it's tied directly with Jesus Christ taking over the kings of the earth by force as the King of Israel. Now turn with me over to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. So that's Old Testament. Zechariah 14, so if you hit Matthew, back it up a little bit from there and you'll hit Zechariah. Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14. So Zechariah 12 talks about the nation of Israel receiving Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Chapter 14 actually talks about the day where he will come back and he takes over the earth by force. You can see Zechariah 14 coexisting with Revelation 19, the verses that we just read. Verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth in fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem. So when Christ comes back, and this is going to be a sight, this is going to be a sight to behold. Heaven opens, Christ comes down. And when he comes down on his horse, he's going to just dismount that horse And when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it's going to completely split the Mount of Olives in two. Totally. East and west. His feet are going to touch. It's like what it said in the book of Acts. When the disciples and the apostles were staring up into heaven, they're like, "Uh, why are you looking up into heaven? He's going to come in like manner. Except one difference. He ascended, but when he comes back down and he hits that mountain, he's going to completely split it in two. And it says that that day, it will not be night. In fact, it will be light. Which Makes perfect sense. So it's going to be like a streak of lightning when he comes down and he hits that mountain. He's going to split it completely in half and then he's going to lay waste to all the nations of the earth. And he's going to take it over by force. And so at his second coming, he descends on that mountain and he takes all the nations by force. And that is when the kingdom of heaven is established. That has not happened yet. And man, I can't wait for that to happen. This world is a wreck. And it needs Jesus Christ. The only way that anything is going to be made right is by Jesus Christ coming back. And that's it. But that's when that physical kingdom will be restored and it'll be in fulfillment of all those prophecies that we've already read. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. And you can see this happening in our world throughout the Old Testament, but also in our world today. The mystery of iniquity includes Satan's direct attack against the physical seed of Israel. And here's why. He wants to prevent the establishment of a people and a kingdom in Israel. In Genesis 3.15, and we've talked about this verse before in weeks past, it says, And I will put enmity between thee, talking about the serpent, the devil, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, important, remember that, and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." So there is something about that seed when God tells this to the devil. He knows exactly what he's talking about. This is the coming of the Messiah and it is going to come through her seed. So think about this from the enemy's perspective. When God said this, Genesis 3:15, what do you think the devil's going to do? Where is his point of attack? Against the seed. He is going to have a seed, the counterfeit seed. And he is going to attack their seed because if he can stop just one thing from unfolding from God's word, God's prophecies, then he has subverted God and he can take over as the most high. So when God put this up here, he said, you're going to have enmity between thee and the woman, but between thy seed and her seed. And so you see this pattern unfold throughout scripture. You see it unfold throughout scripture. So right after Genesis 3, what happens next? Genesis chapter 4 is the first attack on the seed through Eve with Cain killing Abel. It's the very first thing that you see. And then at the end of chapter 4, it's the official recognition that the seed would go through the line of Seth. Even Eve said, well, God has given me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So it's about the seed. What do you see next? After Genesis 4, you have Genesis 5, which is the chapter of death. Moving into Genesis 6, what do you see in Genesis 6, which we've covered this in great detail? It is the attempt to corrupt the whole genealogy of humanity through the sexual immorality of the fallen sons of God and DNA manipulation. And Noah was perfect in his generations. So now you have the worldwide flood where everything is now destroyed. But Noah and his family were perfect in their generations and so they were permitted to build the ark and to be saved through the ark And now God can restart humanity through Noah. What happens after Genesis 6? You work through the flood. They get off the boat. But Genesis chapter 9, at the very end, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, what do you see in Genesis 9? Ham's sexual immorality set the stage for compromising their ability to replenish the earth. You see it right there. Genesis 9, 20 through 27. You can read it later. Where he discovered his father's nakedness. And there's an interesting study on that phrase. You can search that through the scriptures. After Genesis 9, you have Genesis 11. And this is the Tower of Babel. This is the story of the Tower of Babel when humanity came in direct opposition to God's command to be fruitful and multiply across the face of the earth by wanting to centralize and make their own name, their own kingdom, their own religion with the ability to access the third heaven without God. And that's just Genesis 1 through 11. And you start to go through the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, it happens over and over and over and over and over and over. I mean, you should see my references for JBI. It's insane how many times in the Old Testament there are direct attacks against the physical seat of the nation of Israel because the devil wants to prevent the establishment of a people and a kingdom in Israel. If there are no people, there can be no kingdom. So let's kill them off. Let's get him to backstab God. Let's get God to kill him. I mean, you see it all over the place. Even Moses, where God's like, I want to wipe them all out and I'll start over with you. And Moses is like, no, don't do that. Because Moses understood what was going on. He's like, no, there's another way we can handle it. But you see it all over the Old Testament. The second thing, the mystery of iniquity from Satan's direct attack on the physical seed is that he wanted to prevent the direct lineage of Judah to give birth to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the King of the Jews. Because... The devil knows scripture, probably better than any of us. And God said in Genesis 49:10, The Scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him, the Messiah, that would come out of Judah, shall the gathering of the people be. This is very important. The Messiah was going to come through the tribe of Judah. So up to this point, God was good to the nation of Israel. And he preserved them up to a point where now he has a people and a family. and You have these tribes. But specifically through Judah, God chose to give. He's going to give the Messiah. And so the devil knows this. And so he is trying all over the place, all over the place in the Old Testament, to stop Judah from being able to produce the Messiah, to produce Jesus Christ. And I find this really interesting because when you start to get into this side of it, I have on your guys' notes, I have Matthew 1 through 17, That's the genealogical record of Jesus Christ and where he came from and everyone going all the way back to the very beginning. And you find it tucked in there with Matthew 1.12. And this one's interesting. I want to show you a couple of things here. And after they were brought to Babylon, or Jehoiachin begat Salathiel and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. Now, this is very important because... Jaconius was technically the last king before they were brought into Babylon. And if you look at it, this is what the devil's plan has always was from the, very, from the very beginning. I need to stop the kingdom, stop the kingdom, stop the kingdom. And so you see it throughout the Old Testament. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect picture of the Antichrist. And he lays waste to Israel because of Israel's disobedience. And so in that sense, he has won. The moment the Babylon was now established, you really have the devil on full display over the entire earth. He now controls all the nations of the earth. And that continues all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. But what God said, and this was really interesting, what God said about the last two kings about the nation of Israel is this. In Jeremiah twenty-two thirty: 30, because of their disobedience in Judah, thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. That was talked about about Coniah or that Jeconias that we just saw. That was talking about him in particular. That he has failed in his job and there's not going to be a man of his seed any longer going to be able to rule over Judah. And then the very last king where the king's seed was officially cut off was Jeremiah 52, 9 through 11 because Zedekiah was the last one. And it says, then they took the king and carried him up unto the king of Babylon to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon slew the son of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he slew also the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Those two passages tell you that these last two kings of Judah over the nation of Israel at that time, there was no way, there was absolutely no way for a physical seed to now sit on the throne in Jerusalem any longer. It wasn't possible. This is what the devil wanted, and he finally came to the point where he was able to cut off that literal seed. It is now over. Israel, they might be able to become a people again, but they cannot have a king. You might be able to have a people, but you cannot have a kingdom without a king. And so this is why, this is such a big deal, that when Jesus Christ showed up and he said, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was huge. I mean, huge. Because Jesus Christ, through Mary, it goes all the way back through to that one of those last couple kings. But... It's from the seed of the woman. So God had to give a seed unto Mary so that way he could have a male heir to sit on the physical throne in Jerusalem. And that's what happened with with the conception there. And it was so, it was incredible. So that was a huge claim, huge claim. And so when Jesus Christ offered it, that was a big, big deal. And the devil was trying to do everything that he could to stop that from happening. And of course, he couldn't. But what's the whole end? What does he want to do? Well, he wants to establish his own king and his own kingdom over all the earth with Israel as his capital. Because remember Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the devil and the devil's going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But notice there's contention between thy seed and her seed. So let me ask you, is it beyond the realm of possibility if God was speaking literally, which he was because Jesus Christ is alive, he is the seed that came from God, is it beyond the realm of possibility that the devil also has a physical seed? If we're going to believe the Bible... That's exactly what the Bible says. That the devil's going to have a physical seed. I mean, who do you think the Antichrist actually is? The Antichrist. I mean, you think about Jesus Christ being born of a virgin. Do you not think that the devil's going to try to counterfeit that? Of course he is. Of absolute, of course he is. You think Jesus Christ had a death, burial, and resurrection, that the devil's not going to counterfeit that? Of course he is. 100%. You can read that in Revelation. You have an assassination attempt on the Antichrist where he is dead and then he comes back alive. It's in there and then the world is going to wonder because they're like, I can't believe it. He was dead and now he's alive. He's going to fit the mold of what the Messiah was supposed to be from the very beginning. That's why he's able to deceive the whole world. Now we could get to do a whole side study about, well, what about that seed of the devil? We could. We're not going to. I have scripture references on your study sheet. You can take a look at those later. But you better believe that he is going to do that. And you can take a look at that later because I want to make sure that we get through this. So that is the physical, literal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. The devil is going to do his part with the mystery of iniquity to confound it and to counterfeit it and to do his own thing. And you better believe he is doing that now. Everything that's unfolding today in our world is setting everything up to establish the literal counterfeit kingdom ruled by the Antichrist with Satan as the father of it. It is happening. Every little event that unfolds, even what's happening in Israel, between Israel and Hamas and Iran, everything that's happening is is about to set those things up, and it's all a part of it. Whether it happens soon or it happens later, all the chess pieces are putting in order because the God of this world knows how to play this game very well. So now let's talk about the kingdom of God. And this is the part that we should understand very clearly. Turn over with, with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So the kingdom of God is the invisible spiritual kingdom set up by God where Christ rules and reigns on the throne of the heart. It's the invisible spiritual kingdom set up by God where Christ rules and reigns on the throne of the heart. In Luke 17, 20 and 21, it says, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees, I'd love that as if the Pharisees didn't really demand anything. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You can't see it. Neither shall they say, lo, here, or lo, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's not a physical, literal kingdom. It is an invisible, spiritual kingdom, and it's within each individual. In John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews. And I love this uh, this, this discourse here. In verse 2, it says, Then the same Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Then Jesus answered and said unto him, which, by the way, he didn't ask a question. I love this. <laughs> because Jesus knew there was a question in his heart. And he read it and heard it loud and clear. He answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And this isn't sarcasm. He's actually genuine. He wants to understand. That's why he came to him by night. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, that's the natural birth, and of the spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, the natural birth, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, spiritual birth. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? I'm fascinated by this. Because Pharisees, they knew the Bible. They knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. And when you read through the Old Testament, there was a clear need for them to have spiritual understanding. And even God said that I'm going to give you a new covenant or I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put things in you. And there's even prophecies about it. I have a few of them on your study sheet a little bit later. But that's what he was talking about. And so, but here you can see they're very clearly fixated on the physical, literal kingdom. That's all they're looking for. During this time in Israel, everything was ruled by Rome and they wanted the Messiah to completely upend Rome. But the Messiah couldn't up in Rome without the nation actually receiving him. But they had to receive him and receive the spiritual restoration that would come with it. And they didn't want any of that. And so he says some things here to Nicodemus to get him to think. But if you notice, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the physical, literal. It is about that spiritual birth. That he had to be born again. And until you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not possible. It's not possible. In Romans 14... Verse 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In 1 Corinthians 15.50, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption, inherit incorruption. The kingdom of God is that invisible spiritual kingdom. Galatians 6.15 for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availed anything, or uncircumcision, but a new creature. It's not about that physical circumcision, it's about being a brand new creature. It's about being born again. Second Corinthians 5:17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And this happens at the moment of salvation, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The moment you and I are obedient to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where we hear the gospel, the word of truth, and we believe it and we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, we are washed, we are regenerated, we are renewed, we have become brand new creatures we are born again, and now we are a part of this kingdom of God. And so this is what God was talking about through all these verses. And So after Israel rejected Christ as their Messiah, God was able to restore this as a possibility. Now, since you're in John, go back to chapter 1. So the kingdom of God is directly tied with spiritual restoration. And it was established with being born again as the sons of God, and continues into the new covenant with Israel. So John chapter 1, take a look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which, that believe on his name. And then we've already read John 3 as being born again. Those that received Jesus Christ are now become the sons of God, and they are now part of that kingdom. Romans 8, I got a few verses up on the screen just to keep this going. Romans 8, 14, and 19, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. When the Spirit of God moves inside of you and you are born again, he begins leading you, whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not, he begins leading you and guiding you and convicting you, and you can't be the same person that you were before. You can't. If you choose to, you are among the most miserable people on the planet. I know that even from my own life. When I am walking in rebellion to the Spirit of God, which is always in agreement with the Word of God, my life is miserable until I get right with God. And I never last long because there's no way to live. Like, why would we want to do that? Why would our pride be so thick that we would want to resist the Spirit of God in our life? Whenever He's working, we need to obey. But the other side of it, verse 19 The whole of creation can't wait for the manifestation of the sons of God. They can't wait for this finally to be revealed. There's a partial restoration inside because we still live in these fleshly bodies. But there's coming a day that we're going to get glorified bodies. And that's the day when the sons of God are completely manifested, where it's completely clear. And what a day that's going to be. I mean, I can't wait. That's going to be absolutely amazing. To be able to walk through walls, I mean, to eat whatever, to be able to just go wherever God wants me to go in just the blink of an eye. I mean, that's going to be absolutely amazing to be able to serve our Lord. And so the earnest expectation of the creature, they wait for the manifestation of the sons of God. Philippians 2.15, that ye may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You and I as the sons of God being born again have the responsibility that in the midst of this crooked and perverse world, that we need to shine as lights, which means that we cannot be like them. We can't be like them. We have to be different. And the Spirit of God is going to provoke us to be different. In First John 3, 1 and 2, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The world doesn't understand us at all. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Man, it's going to be a great day. That is going to be a great, great day. And this ability to take part in this kingdom of God is going to be given to the nation of Israel when God gives that new covenant. And it talks about that in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, and I've got those references on your study sheet as well. And they're going to be spiritually restored at that time in the future. But now let's talk about the mystery of iniquity, because the mystery of iniquity includes Satan's direct attack against the spiritual seed of God. And first of all, it's to prevent any chance for God to restore a spiritual kingdom. That's what he wanted to do at the very beginning. And he wanted to stop that from even happening. And you can even start to see this. When Jesus Christ showed up in Luke chapter two, he was 12 years old and his parents lost him. He was in Jerusalem, and they left, and they supposed he had been with other family members and other friends, and and they left, and they didn't have him, and they come back, and what was he doing at 12 years old? He was sitting with the doctors, the guys that knew the book, and it says very clearly that he was hearing them, and he was asking them questions. I want to know what questions he asked them. He was asking them questions, and it says that they were astonished at his understanding and answers. So even from the very beginning at 12 years old, he was getting some resistance, spiritually speaking, for sure. In Luke chapter 4, he's in the wilderness and he's being tempted of the devil and he's being attacked and the Satan was trying to stop him from being able to establish that kingdom of God. In John 13 verse 27, it says very specifically that Satan entered into Judas and the whole point of that was to enact the betrayal of Jesus. If he could Kill Jesus, there'd be no way for him to sit on the throne literally, and there's no way that he could restore things spiritually. That's the way that the devil was thinking at that point in time. And then you have the events of John 18 through 19 with the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, where they're mocking at him, they're railing on him, and they're saying, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it describes in Matthew 22 that the invisible side that we don't see, and I mentioned this last week of the crucifixion is when Jesus was intimidatingly surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. There was some invisible warfare going on at that point in time that we cannot comprehend where they were trying to intimidate him while he was dying on the cross. But I want you to see a couple verses here. These verses, I love these verses and I'll never read them the same. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Talking about Jesus Christ, it says, which none of the princes of this world knew, talking about the plan of God, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the devil knew that in killing Jesus Christ would establish the kingdom of God, he would have never done it. He would have never done it. I mean, think about that. Turn with me to Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 2. This is so good. I like when I go to like and do all the context and start with verse one, but we can't. So let's let's start off in verse. Let's see here, talking about what happened um, at our salvation. Let's start in verse ten. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. I wish we could talk about this. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross." And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now let me try to get you to understand the magnitude of what these verses are talking about. Because sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, I'm telling you, this is not a yawner. This is not one to be yawning about. When you understand what's going on here, when you think about the devil and all of his fallen sons of God coming against Jesus Christ, we talked about, last week about how even, devil, even the devil could have used the, the, the weather and everything to kind of just darken the whole land for a period of time. In this moment, it's like, it's like the best movie ever. I love underdogs. Everything was against Jesus Christ. I mean, everything was against him. He had no followers. They were all scattered. Everybody was mocking him, railing on him. Even while he was dying, he had two guys on his right and left that were saying, if you're really the son of God, I mean, just come down off that cross. But then the other changed his mind a little bit later because of the things that he saw and heard. Everything was against Jesus. Like this was the moment, this was the crowning moment for the devil because if he could kill, if he could kill the Messiah, there'd be no chance. The physical kingdom would not be able to be established. The spiritual kingdom cannot be established. It's over. He would have won end of story. And it says very clearly that when this took place, those handwriting of ordinances that was against us, our sins that were contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In that moment, the wrath of God was being poured out upon Jesus Christ. And 1 John 2 two talks about that he didn't, he wasn't just the propitiation for our sins, but he was also the sins of the whole world. Every sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl was on the shoulders of our Savior. Every single sin. And in that moment, he bore the weight of all of our transgressions in that moment. And the devil was in his face the whole time, just railing him and railing and railing him. We often focus about the physical things he went through. Yes, horrible, absolutely horrible. But we cannot even fathom the spiritual weight that he was carrying at that point in time. And when that unfolded, the very moment that he said, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost, It says very clearly in verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The death blow of Jesus Christ being crucified and him dying was the death blow of the devil. And he had no idea. He didn't even see it coming. The moment that he took Jesus out was the moment that Jesus took him out, and that was the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. And he had no idea, had no idea. That's why 1 Corinthians 2 makes it very clear, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of of glory. There is no way that the devil would have allowed Jesus Christ to die on that cross if he knew that in dying, he would actually create and restore the spiritual kingdom of God. There's no way, absolutely no way. But now that it unfolded, now he wants to prevent the establishment of the spiritual restored sons of God. So he can't stop the kingdom. Now it exists. So what is he doing now? Well, 2 Corinthians 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The devil is doing everything that he can to try to hide the gospel, to keep people blinded, so that way they don't understand and that they can't see And oftentimes he makes people or convinces them or tempts them to hold on to very little things that keep them blinded when the truth is right there in front of their face. He's so good at what he does. He's so good. And so what is our job? Well, our job is very similar to what Paul said about his testimony in Acts 26. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Our job is to do the best that we can to convince people and to persuade them for their eyes to be opened. Now, you can't open someone's eyes, you can only give them all the information. They have to make the choice on their own to open their own eyes. But we need to do the best job that we can to help them in the process. We have to, we need to. That's what we're supposed to be doing is building this kingdom of God. So he wants to stop that, which he couldn't. So he wants to stop us from helping other people to be restored because this is what he wants to do. He wants to establish his own counterfeit, his own counterfeit spiritual kingdom with its own Bible, its own Christ, its own spirit, its own apostles of Christ, and its own ministers of righteousness. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11 and we'll end here. 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11. Verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So he's in the process of establishing his own spiritual kingdom. And he wants to create this entire system with false apostles, a false Christ. And he is the head of it as the transformed angel of light. And he has ministers that are ministers of righteousness. And the culmination of all that is going to be seen in Revelation 13, in 19, I'll just read these two verses, and it says, And he had power to give life into the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And we already read Revelation nineteen twenty, And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. He is looking for this false worship. He's trying to redirect everything back to this counterfeit spiritual kingdom. And so it should be no surprise, no surprise whatsoever that our entire world, especially our country, are full of pastors that are actually false pastors. It's full of churches that are using false Bibles. It's full of people that call themselves apostles and have nothing, nothing in common with actual apostles at all. And there's ministers of righteousness that are not ministers of righteousness because that is what he's wanting to do all along, all along. That is a very brief overview, but I want to end it by looking at this chart again. Because those are the two kingdoms. There's coming a day in the future where both kingdoms will exist, and they will be hand in hand, and they will be restored once and for all together, and there will be no end. Because what God has always wanted to do, and you see the entire Bible, this is the theme of the Bible. It's all about the king and his kingdom. It's all about these kingdoms being established. And at the very, very beginning They were in harmony together. And then you have Lucifer and then Adam, and then you have the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who then brings everything back full circle. But that's why the Old Testament is laid out that way. That's why the New Testament is laid out that way. And that's why so many people misapply parts of Scripture and come up with some massive false doctrine. And so the things that we see now with the nation of Israel must take place. It it, it has to take place. I think about 1948 and with Israel becoming a nation, that's really honestly the last thing that needed to happen before the rapture is going to take place. I mean, there's people that debate about the temple and when it needs to be rebuilt. It doesn't have to be rebuilt for us to get out of here. It doesn't. It could, but we have no idea. There is nothing left. The only thing is us just to wait for that trumpet. That's it. And until that day comes, we better be about the business of the restoration of the sons of God. We are here to build a spiritual, invisible kingdom where every man and every woman can be in fellowship with their creator through Jesus Christ. And that is our job. We are not here to build a physical kingdom. We need to spread the gospel. We need to disciple as much as possible. And anything that gets in the way of that should be tossed out. And that's why we do what we do as a church. This is why Pastor Tom talked about that last week where he said everything that we do, everything we do as a church is a result of doctrines such as this. Because we want to get home and I want to hear the Lord say, well done. You did what was right. But we have to rightly divide the scriptures and we have to know what we should be doing. And if we don't understand the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be way off, way off. This is critical. So this is worth the time to get back into and study these verses out and to really make sure to get your heart and mind around it because it will help you to understand the entire Bible. And so take the time to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. I do pray that we would take these things and really spend time meditating on them and hiding them in our heart and searching the scriptures, whether these things are so, and that you would help us to be sound in our doctrine so we can be sound in our thinking and sound in our decisions. And so, Lord, we really need you. And so I pray tonight that you would continue to convict us on the things that we need to shore up in our life, that we could be more faithful to you and be good representatives of you, the best representatives of you. Living in a time of Laodicea, it can be very difficult, it can be very frustrating. So give us wisdom, and give us courage, and give us boldness to live rightly, so that we may honor you and glorify you the way you need to be, the way you ought to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.